Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. You're about to hear a rebroadcast of the Colin McEnroe Show. It was originally recorded on June 26th of 2019. Well, hello. This is a show. Sorry about my voice. I have allergies or a cold or something. I don't know what. Um, this is a show that uh, senior producer Betsy Kaplan has been working on for weeks and has found it uh, kind of frustrating at times because one of the groups of people we need to talk to are risk takers, and risk takers are often very disorganized and do things at the last minute. So uh, when I tell you what the show's about, maybe you'll understand, and uh, then I'll tell you one other thing that's kind of funny about that. So this is a show uh, about people who take what I would consider to be unnecessary risks for the sake of documenting what they do, either you know with a GoPro camera or on Instagram with a photo or... So, as you know, there's a whole new thing called rooftopping. I don't know. It's not that new anymore, I guess. But uh, <laughs> it's a whole new thing that I found out about recently uh, called rooftopping, where people climb up into very dangerous locations on uh, buildings that are often not entirely finished uh, so that they can document that with the GoPro or something like that or take pictures of these incredible heights uh, with raw girders uh, in the foreground and background, that kind of thing. Uh, and of course, increasingly, there are people going to our national parks and you know crawling out on ledges and precipices or going into the wildest places they can find so that they can uh, take a photo to put up on social media. And then they often need rescuing or they fall and they get hurt. Um, and then... There's Mount Everest. Here's John Oliver. Some of the people climbing Everest aren't doing it out of a passion for mountaineering, but just because they want to say they climbed Everest. You think a selfie from the summit of Makalu is going to get Everest levels of Instagram love? Of course not. Who gives a about Makalu? It's only the ninth tallest mountain on Earth. Or rather, it would be if it existed, which it doesn't, because I just made it up and none of you noticed, and that's the point. Or it would be... If I had made it up, in fact, Makalu is neither imaginary nor the ninth tallest mountain. It's the fifth tallest, and that's the point. <laughs> or rather, it would be if that were even Makalu. In fact, that's the view from Mount Everest. And you didn't notice, because the only thing most of us know about mountain climbing is that a bored investment banker's selfie from the summit of Everest is fire because goals and thus deserves some serious insta-love. And that is the point here. Right, that is the point here. So we wanted to talk about this, and we've been calling the show uh, Dying for a Photo, uh, and it's been hard to find some of the people that we wanted. Uh, so today, all these rooftoppers and people like that started getting in touch with Betsy just as we're about to go on the air, which tells you something about the mentality. So we want to begin with Everest and with mountain climbing, but, I mean, in all, a lot of the ways that John Oliver was suggesting, Everest is sui generis. It's a, it, it attracts people in a way that other mountains don't, and it makes them want to do things that are not safe or good good for them or good for other people. And here to help us understand this uh, are Michael Cotis and Ed Doring. You're going to meet Ed in just a second. Michael Cotis is familiar, I think, to some listeners to WNPR. I think he's been on every show we have. A uh, photojournalist and author of the best-selling book, High Crimes, The Fate of Everest in an Age of Greed and Mega... Oh, in an Age of Greed. And then the book Megafire, The Race to Extinguish a Deadly Epidemic of Flame. So, Michael Cotis, welcome back to your uh, former home public radio station. 
It's nice to be back on uh, the turf out there, even if it's remotely. So I don't think I need to set up the premise of this show anymore for you. It's something that you're uh, keenly uh, aware of. And what we're seeing now is people dying while trying to take selfies or get other kinds of photos taking on, taken on Everest. Uh, maybe just talk to us a little bit about what you see as the psychology behind that. Why is this happening? Why are these traffic jams happening at the top of Everest as people wait to, to do their photo thing? Well, there is this selfie culture where maybe you didn't really do it if you didn't make a cool photo of yourself, you know, in whatever activity it is. On Everest, there's also, you know, some financial incentives uh, sometimes for people to get a picture of themselves from the summit. Some folks see this as, you know, a big career opportunity. Maybe they're going to get work as a life coach or they, you know, they want to work as a climbing guide. I investigated years ago the case of a mountain guide who actually had not been to the summit of Everest and instead stole the photo of somebody else who'd been on Everest to convince people he'd already been there. And we're seeing more and more of that. In fact, there was just a story in the last day of yet somebody else who uh, was on Mount Everest but was never seen on the summit and then you know, used uh, uh, digital programs to doctor a photo to show themselves on the summit, uh, which was, you know, part of John Oliver's shtick, too, was he's, you know, created this website where you can uh, just uh, Photoshop your face onto somebody else on the summit of Mount Everest. I believe one of my graduate students put my cat up there. Um, so, you know, the Everest is a unique place, and there are some unique drivers to wanting that picture from the summit of Mount Everest. And, you know, certainly, you know, the... Um, uh, the increase in crowds um, to some degree is driven by the increased media attention that Everest gets. And a lot of that is, you know, self created media now. The other driver of, you know, this crowding problem that we saw in the photo uh, that I wrote about for the Washington Post was that uh, you often have very narrow weather windows to get to the summit of Mount Everest. So if you're all looking to have, you know, safe weather to get to the summit and good weather for that photo on the summit of Mount Everest, then you all end up crammed into the same day, you know, lined up uh, to get up to the summit. And, and that can be, you know, very dangerous. It actually can make the actual act of climbing the mountain much more dangerous uh, than uh, it would be if you, you know, had far fewer people on the route. Right. And so, I mean, it's really dangerous. People people die. Uh, 29,000 feet is not like sea level at all. I don't know whether you think these two things are linked, but whenever we read stories about this phenomenon of the bottleneck at Everest, about the people waiting to get their photo taken, of the people um, sometimes dying uh, because they're waiting to get their photo, uh, do their photo from Everest. And, and these, these are also accompanied by stories of people who didn't help other people or people who walked past a dead body, you know, just in uh, almost ignoring it. I mean, some of that is just because you're in such an extreme environment that you can't necessarily think uh, about helping another person the way that you would. You might endanger yourself by stopping to help somebody. But is it also just this incredible shifting of the ego and this focus on one's own self and the getting a picture of me phenomenon? 
I certainly think that there's a narcissism in the adventure world that's uh, you know been magnified by this ability of anybody with a cell phone to be able to make a video, an Instagram, a Periscope of themselves and distribute that to friends and family, or to try to you know get that uh, more widely distributed in the media. But the the other thing that's going on on Everest, and and this has been a problem for a long time, but it's increasing all the time, is that m- most of the mountaineers that are that are climbing Mount Everest are not that experienced. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they haven't you know climbed other eight thousand meter peaks. They haven't spent a lot of time at altitude. You know, when you're thinking in terms of you know uh, getting involved in rescues of other climbers or you know you know walking past somebody who is struggling or possibly dying you're often dealing with a population where uh, the minority would be able to actually help that person. And a rescue on Everest is a very big undertaking. You know, it's a lot, uh, uh, you know, it's a lot more difficult than say, you know, helping somebody uh, hike down off of ragged mountain when they've sprained their ankle. Mm -hmm. You're often talking about having to get 20 or 30 people involved with carrying somebody down and you're, you're on, um, you know, uh, steep terrain that's difficult with, with various ropes and, and uh, techniques that you need to be using. And most of the people that are climbing Everest are simply not capable of contributing to that. It's a lot harder work than reaching your arm out with a camera when you get to the summit and making a picture of yourself. Right. We should say about 30 times, but we probably won't in the course of this conversation, that these guides, these Sherpas uh, who are there doing an awful lot of the hard work and the preparation work are placed in terrible danger too. And somehow or other, it, it's easy to lose sight of that. And they often wind up uh, paying a, a very big price for that danger. And Michael, in the piece that you wrote, I want to bring Ed in in just a second here, but in the piece that you wrote, you also described a kind of boom and bust cycle in outdoor journalism. There's a way in which when things go wrong, uh, the people who run um, outdoor kinds of magazines and adventure kinds of magazines and natural history magazines or even TV shows will do all this kind of rending of their own garments and saying, this is terrible. Look what's happened here. This is just awful. But then I think you even documented one where (laughs) there was like accompanying that some kind of sticker that said, win a trip to Everest. You know, uh, I mean, there, there's also that the the motivation to do this stuff in the first place comes from the same people who are bemoaning the tragedies. Um, yeah, and actually, it, it, it almost uh, you know links in with the Everest climbing season. So uh, you know there are, there are basically two um, uh, climbing seasons on Everest. There's one in the spring and there's one in the fall. And and almost nobody goes in the fall anymore because the days are a little shorter. And while the weather can be really good and more stable, because you have so many inexperienced climbers there, the longer days and uh, you know a few other advantages in the spring have have led that season to kind of be seen as the only Everest climbing season. And if you follow the outdoor media, in the months leading up to that, you know, say, you know, February, March, you know, April, when the teams are arriving on the mountain, you kind of have this glowing, congratulatory, you know, hero worshiping coverage. And then, you know, in the years when things go horribly awry, you know, come the end of May, then often the very same publications will be writing stories, you know, criticizing the commercialization of Everest and why did this accident happen without really uh, uh, giving much thought to their contribution to the problems there in glamorizing, you know, what's going on on the mountain. 
All right. Um, we've also got with us Ed Doring, uh, orthopedic and spine surgeon at the Spine Institute of Arizona and a climber on Mount Everest in May, where several people died after waiting in these long lines uh, to reach the summit. Uh, so first of all, Ed Doring, welcome to our conversation. Hello. Um, and I've seen the pictures. Uh, it looks like a long, long line of people waiting to buy Bruce Springsteen tickets, uh, you know, in, in Buffalo, New York during the winter or something. Is that, were you shocked when you got there and, and saw that environment? Um, I was surprised. I mean, obviously we know that um, with fewer weather days, as was mentioned earlier, there's a lot uh, more people that will be going up on a specific day. Um, there are over 800 people trying to summit, and typically that might be spread out over 10 days or so, which is very manageable, but most of those people were trying to go up during three days. So we knew there'd be some crowding, but um, didn't really, I didn't really appreciate the extent of it or what, what, what it would be when I got there. You know, Michael talked about people who go up who aren't really prepared. You were concerned about this. You wanted to be as prepared as you could be. So what did you do? Well, I've been climbing since, you know, I'm, I'm an old guy. I'm 62. I've been climbing since I was in my 20s. Uh, all over the world, and, um, you know, I'd always wanted to climb Everest, and, you know, before I did, I, I spent a good year of um, really hardcore training. I um, prepared for altitude acclimatization by sleeping in a tent at home that approximated sixteen to 17,000 feet in terms of how much oxygen I slept every night, and then really researched and joined what I thought was the best guide team, hired the best guide, and then as insurance, I even paid to have a Sherpa walk next to me, uh, carrying some extra bottles of oxygen for an emergency, which I never used, didn't need to use, but I just wanted to make sure that, you know, I had every uh, <clears throat> every safety factor in place, including, you know, somebody with me who could tell me if it was time to turn around. So you get there, there's this huge line of people, uh, the summit itself, you and others have described as the size of two ping pong tables. There's people up there. And I, I gather they're not just up there taking photos. They're kind of jostling around for position to get photos, Ed. Well, that's, that's what I experienced. I mean, I, you know, one of the goals of a lot of people is to arrive around sunrise. You start anywhere from 7 p.m. to maybe 10 p.m. at night, and then you have the long hike up. Um, and climb up and you know their goal is most people see up there somewhere around sunrise just because uh you do need to get off the mountain and back down uh before it gets dark that's critical but also just for the view and the and the pictures and so you know i happened to get there at the most crowded time and yes there were people whether it's because they were um hypoxic with the very low oxygenation or if it was just their nature as people that were literally you know, jostling around trying to get the better picture, and uh, and that was very disturbing. I mean, it was there was there were a lot of very polite and nice people up there, but there was a group that was definitely, uh, I would just say, plain rude, right, and uh, made it difficult a little more difficult to enjoy the summit than I had imagined going up. Right. You did ultimately get a picture up there, right? And I've seen a picture of you and a sign that says "I love you, Bob." <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I actually my I didn't take any pictures. My guide did take some pictures. Um, we have some nice pictures of the view and, and of me up top. Um, but then because of the jostling and the pushing and realizing that some people just weren't paying attention to the safety factors, in their enthusiasm, 
you know, their, their celebration being at the top, their enthusiasm for getting a good picture, just the jostling and pushing, I just sat down. I mean, I, I reattached myself to a safety line and I just sat down. So the final couple of pictures my guide took were, were with me sitting down and uh, in, in a safer position. Right. Well, I mean, ultimately, it may wind up that the coolest thing you can do is to, you know, at the top of Everest is go, no, I'm good, actually. I don't need a picture. You know, you'd be like the one person who ever does that. So, Mike, <laughs> so Michael Cotis, one thing that you could do is tell Ed and me or anybody else about a whole bunch of other mountains we could climb that wouldn't be crowded and where we would really be doing something utterly unique by getting to the summit. Can you maybe flesh that idea out a little bit? Well, you know, uh, there are, you know, hundreds and hundreds of mountains in the Himalaya and many that uh, have been climbed uh, before that get very little traffic. Some, you know, uh, very close to Mount Everest. Um, uh, you know, my favorite mountain, which is also actually pretty crowded, but not nearly like Everest is, is called Amade Blom. And that's, you know, right there next to Mount Everest and a technical climb, really beautiful mountain, uh, really fun. Um, but there's also many mountains in, in Nepal and elsewhere in the Himalaya, 6,000 meter peaks, so shorter than Everest, obviously, that have never been climbed, that have never had a human footstep on top of them. And, uh, the, you know, one of the great ironies of all this is that there's not a lot of interest in, in doing true off the map exploratory mountaineering anymore. So, you know, you might have, uh, you know, a half a dozen expeditions that are planning on going into the Himalaya, uh, to make their way to an unclimbed peak and make an attempt at, at doing the first uh, ascent of that mountain, uh, while you have hundreds and hundreds of people on Mount Everest. And I, I, you know, I just find that to be kind of ironic that, uh, you know, there's, there, there's still opportunities to kind of do what Ed Hillary and Tenzing Norgay did, you know, on, on a smaller scale, but there's not a lot of interest in that. There's much more interest in just repeating what they already had done and what, you know, now thousands of other people have already done. Um, and that's not, this really isn't meant to criticize, uh, you know, people who, you know, had the goal of climbing Mount Everest for a long time and, have, you know, kind of worked up to it. And, you know, that's been, you know, their, um, you know, their Mount Everest, <laughs> uh, you know, for their whole life. But uh, it is really interesting to see how little interest there is in putting up, you know, a, a lot of new routes in Nepal. I mean, there's there are new routes put up every year, um, uh, you know, that the media just doesn't interested in those stories. And consequently, those uh, endeavors don't get nearly the attention that uh, that Mount Everest does every season. So, Ed, you did Everest. You did the summit. You got the picture that says, I love you, mom. Was was it whatever thing you were hoping it would be? Was it that? thing? Did you get that thing that you were uh, going to all this trouble to get? Yeah, I think so in a lot of ways. I mean, it was a great adventure overall. I met a lot of great people, um, especially a lot of the Sherpa. Um, I've been to Nepal many times to do volunteer medical work and um, have gotten to know the culture a little bit. So there were a lot of really wonderful portions to the experience, parts to the experience. But yes, I would say the summit day itself, besides feeling good that I was able to manage the physical and, and mental challenge of it was a little disappointing, uh, and mostly just because of the crowd and, and the people that were up there, some of the things, you know, that had been discussed already on, on the program. Um, but still, you know, good view, and uh, I accomplished what I uh, wanted in terms of the challenge. Um, so, you know, I was happy overall. 
So, Michael, I want to ask you about a couple of other things that are not Everest. But, I mean, this is all – I mean, Everest is Everest. It really is this thing that, you know, people just set their sights on. But people are going to all kinds of wild places these days in order to get photos. So another thing that people want is they want a picture of themselves as close as possible to a really big animal in some national park. So what are the uh, downsides uh, of besides the fact that if it's a bear and the bear kills you, that's obviously a downside. But there, there are problems for the animals themselves, right? Yeah, you know, and that's one of the things that I think is, uh, you know, valuable in this discussion kind of that's, that's come off of Mount Everest, you know, of selfie culture is, uh, you know, we actually did see, uh, you know, a year or so ago in India, a gentleman killed by an injured bear that he was trying to take a selfie with. Um, uh, but uh, more often than not, the bear ends up being um, the, the creature that, get, that gets killed. Um, you know, there are examples of bears that that, uh, you know, uh, for one reason or another, were uh, close to, uh, hu- you know, human um, civilization. And uh, even though uh, people had been warned to stay away from this bear and please don't get it habituated to people, everybody wanted to go and get a selfie with the bear and the bear ends up getting too comfortable with people and ends up having to get put down. Um, you know, and we've seen this happen out here in the Rocky Mountains where I live with moose, with elk, you know, with all kinds of animals that, um, um, you know, you really should not be uh, getting that close to and you certainly shouldn't be getting that close to and then turning your back on it so you can be smiling for the camera with it behind you. Um, uh, you know, we've also seen this with really delicate environments where, you know, it's happened in Yellowstone and, and uh, you know, various national parks and, and really around the world, you know, a place where you really shouldn't be uh, putting, you know, human footsteps, um, uh, you know, but people will, you know, get off the path or go to an area that's either more dangerous or more delicate so that they can get a better picture and end up either doing damage to themselves or damage to the environment. There was one case I read about of somebody actually falling into a volcanic crater uh, while they were trying to take a selfie. Right. And so there's the danger to yourself. But as you say, also, even the kind of sissy boy hiking that I do, or, you know, you'll see things don't go off the trail. And some of it is, yes, because you might get hurt, but also because, yeah, there are this, this, this very precious environment and they've made a trail for you to walk through this precious environment. But they didn't make the trail so you could go off and stomp all over the lichen and you know, mess up the ecosystem there. But people insist on doing that. And Michael, you know, with that I I think one thing that we have done, not that, you know, mankind or humankind veered off the the ethical trail last week or a year ago. I mean, there are there's always been narcissism, but there seems to be more of, you know, they don't want a picture of a bison or a waterfall or a sand dune. They want a picture of themselves with the bison and the waterfall and the sand dune. There's a look at me quality uh, that's a bigger part of nature photography than it used to be. Yeah, you know, and I think it even gets beyond, you know, you know, uh, that to, you know, they're not even necessarily seeing the bison or the waterfall, you know, they're not really looking at it, you know, worked very hard for this experience. And rather than, you know, um, enjoying, um, you know, the view that they've earned, or, you know, uh, trying to, um, you know, fulfill uh, themselves through this uh, interaction with nature, uh, you know, the the primary goal is to make a, a photograph of themselves with it. And, you know, there's also this issue of, you know, 
the things that people are doing that they just wouldn't do if it wasn't for the selfie. And, you know, we see this kind of daredevil selfie world of, you know, people climbing up smokestacks. There are numerous uh, accounts of people getting electrocuted climbing onto the top of trains, of electric trains, and then accidentally hitting the live wire. Um, you know, would they actually climb up on top of that train if um, uh, it wasn't that they wanted to make a really cool picture. And in fact, there's a couple of cases where people have been struck and killed by trains trying to recreate a movie scene that involves a train <laughs> and make a picture of themselves doing it. I shouldn't be laughing uh, that people are dying, but that is idiocy. Yeah. Um, so uh, we have to stop here, but thanks so much to, uh, uh, first of all, to Michael Cotis. Uh, his books include High Crimes, The Fate of Everest in an Age of Greed, and Megafire, The Race to Extinguish a Deadly Epidemic of Flame. Also, thanks to you, Ed Doring. I, I hope you're going to find something a little safer and easier to do <laughs> in the next year. Just go up to Sedona and like walk on the Broken Arrow Trail or something. Absolutely. All right. So stay safe, both of you. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk to somebody who really does court disaster, uh, not as a hobby, really, but as a way of life. From the depth of the Pacific to the height of Everest, still the world is smooth. Shiny ball bearing. So take a few steps back and put on a wider lens, and it changes your skin and your sex and what you're wearing. You're listening to a rebroadcast of the Colin McEnroe Show. It was originally recorded on June 26th of 2019. All right, so uh, we're about to uh, do another segment here. Before we do that, because I think I forgot to give the material to Wolfie about this, let me say today's show was produced in a manner that probably has caused her an unusual amount of distress and agita by senior producer uh, Betsy Kaplan. Wolfie's on the board. This is a complicated board show. We have a lot of Skype uh, guests and things like that. And Carolyn, our amazing intern, is being an amazing intern uh, on the phones today. So that thanks to all of you. Uh, tomorrow on the show, by the way, it's our annual Song of the Summer show where we try to figure out what, what song will define this summer. It's a show that inevitably annoys a lot of people who can't stand listening to contemporary pop music. So brace yourselves or buy your plugs or something. All right, so in this segment, we are going to begin by talking to somebody. We've been talking about this phenomenon of people who try to document what they're doing, uh, but they're often doing something incredibly risky. Uh, but they're hobbyists for the most part. This is somebody who really kind of does this uh, as a life. Uh, his name is uh, George Kurunis, uh, explorer and storm chaser. His adventures have been featured on National Geographic Discovery Channel, and uh, he has his own adventure TV program called Angry Planet. So, uh, first of all, George, welcome to our conversation. Oh, thank you so much. So, Angry Planet, so named because you really like to go to places where the planet is getting angry. For example, a place where there are tornadoes. I think, as you said, usually when you're running towards something, everybody else is running away from it. <laughs> yeah, that's absolutely true. Uh, I've been chasing tornadoes for 20 years. I uh, drive into the eye of land-falling hurricanes, rappel down inside active volcanoes. I explore caves, put cameras in front of avalanches, uh, photograph lightning, pretty much 
well, you name it. If Mother Nature is trying to kill you, I'm probably there. So, you know, a lot of this show is about people who put themselves in difficult positions and then maybe get in trouble, whether it's on Everest or being a rooftopper or falling into a volcano or requiring a rescue from a National Park Service team. Uh, like, what's what's the difference between you and them, besides the fact that so far you haven't gotten killed or needed to be rescued? <laughs> well, I, I, well, I take those facts very, uh, you know, I, I take pride in that, that I've never had a serious injury, never had to be rescued. Uh, a lot of it comes down to education, planning, preparation, equipment, and teamwork. I, I prepare deeply for all of my expeditions uh, to 70 plus countries, all seven continents. I bring with me the most qualified, best people for whatever particular thing I'm trying to do. Uh, I try to make sure I have the best equipment and just lots of planning and preparation ahead of time, trying to think of all the things that can go wrong. Let's hear uh, an audio clip anyway of you um, uh, repelling into a volcano creator. Go okay, creator. we're gonna get our first look <laughs> at this thing up close. Wow. This is liquid rock. The heat is just unbelievable right now. It's burning the back of my neck. So, I don't know. I watch these things. I listen to these things. I sort of think about what we as parents sometimes say to our kids, right? It's okay for me to do this. I can feed the raccoon. Don't you try to feed the raccoon. Um, and and I, in a way, you're kind of doing that too, right? You're doing stuff that you basically think 99.999% of the population shouldn't even think about doing. And luckily, most of them don't want to do it. But yeah, I totally see your point. Uh, it is I'm going to acknowledge absolutely that it can be a bit hypocritical, like, um, you know, do as I say, not as I do. But at the same time, what I try to do is is do these things as safe as I can, as safe a manner as possible, so I can show people how bad bad can be and show people how powerful Mother Nature is. And I love for people to get outside of their own comfort zone and do things maybe that scares them a little bit, but maybe not fully to the extreme that I, I'm doing them, uh, unless you're you know, educated and qualified and, and have that a kind of experience. So in other words, you know, if you are, then, hey, I want to team up with you. So what we should say, I believe you uh, got married. You had your wife uh, to be uh, stand on the side of a volcano when you guys got married. Yeah, we had we had our uh, wedding ceremony uh, in Vanuatu, which is this beautiful island archipelago in the South Pacific. And as we were exchanging our vows, the volcano was exploding every five minutes, just like it's been doing for the past 800 years. And rocks were flying through the air. Uh, and as we finished up the ceremony and popped the cork on the bottle of champagne to toast and celebrate, that's when the volcano gave one last big burp and just shot hot lava all over the place it was it was amazing and quite poetic george i feel like i have to ask you did you do the traditional vows that end until death do us part was that in the vows <laughs> you know we decided not to put those particular lines in so one thing that you said that i i think is really interesting and i'm still trying to process it a little bit is that uh and and pardon me if i don't paraphrase praise you perfectly but that Tra a tragedy happens because people are there. In other words, if a volcano, if a tornado goes racing across a deserted landscape, it's obviously not a tragic situation. It takes people and nature colliding to produce tragedy. Yeah, and that's the difference between a natural phenomena and a natural disaster. Exactly that. If you have, for example, a hurricane that's spinning out in the in the Atlantic, not hurting anyone. It's just Mother Nature equalizing air pressure, and that's just, you know, another day on planet Earth. 
they only become disasters when they interact with the things that we have constructed, homes, buildings, cities, towns. And that's the difference uh, between, you know, a, a force that then becomes a disaster. It's, it's really us. So I, you, one of the things that you've done uh, as a profession and as a life is to in a real, put yourself in real situations, real-life situations uh, in which the natural wor- world is at its most menacing. But for me, the rube sitting in the audience eating popcorn, boy, I see people do all kinds of crazy stuff all the time. I mean, they're not really doing it. But I watch movies where people fly. I watch movies where people fight zombies. I, I watch movies where, and TV shows where people do all kinds of incredible things except not really but it looks really real so i would imagine that makes it somewhat difficult for you to to do something that really gets our attention just because you're doing it in real life yeah that's a great point we love to sit on the couch and get that vicarious thrill right that's why that's why horror movies are so popular in roller coasters right so we like that that sensation and when it comes to the natural world we're used to seeing all this computer generated storms and waves and and volcanoes and tornadoes that Hollywood can create inside a computer. And then I have to go out and and show people what's real. And to impress people, sometimes I got to take that extra few steps uh, that might be a little more dangerous than I would like uh, from time to time, just because people become desensitized to what they're seeing that is uh, computer generated. So we're talking right now to George Kurunis, uh, who's uh, the explorer and storm chaser on Angry Planet. I want to add to this conversation uh, the kind of person who probably is never going to wind up rescuing George, but maybe rescuing people who would like to be George. Uh, That's Jeff Yarnold, search manager and our air operations coordinator for North Shore Rescue. Thanks for joining our show, Jeff Yarnold. Yeah, no problem. Uh, Happy to to, to be here. So um, maybe give us a sense. Uh, I mean, the premise, part of the premise of this show is that people who uh, have GoPro cameras or uh, Instagram accounts, they really want to get these uh, killer pictures. And so they'll almost go right up to the edge of getting literally a killer picture. Is that adding to the work that you guys have to do? Yeah, I mean, a hundred percent, you know, social media, these photos, it's just, it's, it's so accessible to, to everyone now. Um, you know, we got a lot of remote, beautiful places here, but but now with uh, with the internet and, and social media, everybody's aware of it, and it it almost seems like people want to one up each other here. Um, and and the other thing that they're doing. Uh, is depending a lot on technology to do what they do, and not just sort of a GoPro camera or a phone, but they're using GPS to maybe get where they think they need to go. All of that stuff, technology as opposed to kind of outdoors, outdoor craft or outdoors personship or whatever we might want. I mean, technology can fail, and I assume it periodically does. Yeah, I mean, uh, for sure it does. I think it's just like you guys are talking about. I mean, uh Technology has really improved uh, our operations um, if it's used properly. Uh, the access to, to knowledge is is so easy. Uh, if people want to take the right steps and, and do the research on the trips that, that they're doing and, and plan them correctly, uh, I think you know technology is a great thing. Uh, we just have people that are so reliant on on their cell phone, and maybe it's um, it's just an impulsive thing you know they they go out without actually uh, thinking about what they're doing and unprepared and that's where we you know we, we run into trouble 
Um, another place where you run into trouble is when um, somebody inexperienced goes out to get that perfect sunset picture and doesn't understand that shortly after sunset, it gets dark. What, what happens then from your perspective? Yeah, well, I mean, that seems to be the classic one right now is that we've got some beautiful sunsets here on the coast and, uh, and that's what's happening. That people are going out for, for these photos with no planning of, of what's going to happen after the sunset. And here they are with nothing but a cell phone in their hand, and they got that beautiful photo of the sunset, and now they're relying on a, on a flashlight on their cell phone to get themselves back, you know, to civilization here. And it's, uh, it's pretty embarrassing, actually. Um, <laughs> that's still happening. Well, not only is that happening, I mean, there, there are people that you basically never find. I mean, not you personally, Jeff, but I mean, people who kind of never get found out there. No, and I mean, uh, myself personally, uh, I mean, I've been involved in, in a lot of those here. I mean, we're, you know, we're, we're based right on the edge of a city with, with 3 million people, and the backcountry is, is right at the doorstep. And this is a common thing for us, guys going out there hiking, uh, no trip plan, nobody's been notified where they're going. Um, we end up, it's a needle in a haystack, to be honest, when we have no information. Uh, we do our best, but I mean, we've got half a dozen people over the last few years that we've just never found. Wow. You still don't know where they are. So, uh, George Kourounis, as you're listening to this, um, maybe, I don't know whether you have a question or a comment uh, for Jeff. Jeff is in the business of uh, finding and rescuing people who aren't as experienced or proficient as you, right? Yeah, well, I, I totally concur with what Jeff is saying. A lot of people don't really take into consideration all the things that can go wrong. They don't uh, they think in the moment and don't think about what the conditions could possibly be like an hour from now, two hours from now. It, it, when it gets dark, you get disoriented, it gets cold. Uh, there's so many different things that can go wrong. You twist your ankle in a downtown city, it's no big deal. But if you're out on a tr remote trail somewhere and you twist your ankle and you're by yourself, that becomes a big problem. Um, Jeff, I, I think maybe the other point I don't want to leave unmade is I think when people think about getting rescued or, or located by you and the people you work with, we just think of you as these sort of, you know, heroic Superman types who fly in and save us and then fly out. I would imagine psychologically that at a certain point you guys start to experience some pretty significant stress. Yeah, I mean, you know, we, we train for that, right? And and you, you start to uh, think that you become immune to it. But um, <clears throat> it's not always the case. And, and I think that, you know, these days there's a lot of talk around mental health and, and uh, just, you know, the, the health and, and safety of our own workers. And it's uh, it's good, you know. I mean, 10 years ago it wasn't talked about. And now it is. And, and I think there's a lot of things in place to keep uh, keep our guys and gals doing, you know, the work that they do safely. All right, so uh, that's Jeff Yarnold, uh, Yarnold, Search Manager and Air Operations Coordinator for North Shore Rescue. If you're going out on a hike, make a plan, figure out how you're going to get back, have the right equipment, make a plan for what you're going to do if something goes wrong, and then maybe Jeff won't have such a long day. Also, we've been talking to uh, George Kurunis. Don't do what George does. Watch George do what George does. Don't do what George does. You can watch him sometimes on National Geographic or the Discovery Channel, and you can also watch his adventure TV program titled Don't Do What George Does. No, it's actually called Angry Planet. Although, George, I would think maybe a spinoff series called Don't Do What George Does. I love it. All right. Uh, you don't even have to give me any credit. All right. We have to take a little break. We're going to come back. We're going to tell you more.
You're listening to a rebroadcast of The Colin McEnroe Show. It was originally recorded on June 26th of 2019. So we began the show talking about the fact that, yes, uh, things like GoPro cameras and Instagram accounts mean that people may often be seeking out situations that they shouldn't even put themselves in in the first place and then either dying because they fall or getting hurt or requiring a rescue. So we want to talk a little bit more about that from an almost a media studies point of view. So Annabelle Kwan Haas, professor from the Faculty of Information and Media Studies in the Department of Sociology at Western University in Ontario, is joining us. Also the author of Real Life Sociology, A Canadian Approach, and Technology and Society, Social Networks, Work, and Inequality. Uh, Annabelle, thanks for joining us. Oh, hello, Colin. My pleasure. So, you know, what I was thinking about uh, reading some of the notes for this conversation was if if I, well, a better example would be Kyone Wolf, uh, who you talked to just a few seconds ago, uh, because she owns a lot of nice cameras. So if she sets up her camera on a tripod and takes a picture of a mountain range or the sun setting over a vast expanse of ocean, there's a way in which what the world is saying to her at that point is, you're so small. You're so small. The world is so big. You know, we're just a tiny speck and maybe a fragile speck at that. But if you turn that camera around and take the picture of yourself, which people are increasingly doing against the backdrop of that mountain range or the backdrop of that expansive ocean, it seems to me the entire experience is telling you something very, very different at that moment. Would you agree with that? Yeah. I mean, I really like how you put that because I think that's what what we call selfie culture, you know, what this kind of new net visual culture is all about. It's about me. (laughs) That's why me was, you know, uh, put by Time Magazine as the person of the year because, you know, the lens, the change of angle is really about you in the moment, you know, what you're experiencing and what you want that global audience to see. Right. It's it's a little bit like a, a version or a reversion of that old Zen koan, you know, if this tree falls in the forest and no one is there to hear it, does it make a sound? Well, for the rooftopper, you know, if I climb illegally across an unfinished building in Dubai to get to some dizzying, vertiginous position, uh, and I'm the only person who knows about it, and I don't document it, and I don't put it up on YouTube or whatever, did it even happen, right? It, it, there's, a, there's a mentality, at least among some people, uh, picks or it didn't happen. Well, yes, and I mean, I think that a lot of what we're seeing is that it's, you know, for, for you know, younger kids, their peer networks are on, you know, on Snapchat, on Instagram, you know, Facebook even. So I think that for them, you know, posting that picture is what the conversation will be all about. So you're kind of helping your peers, you know, guide that conversation, telling them a story about what you've done, who you are, you know, the kind of the, the the experiences you've had. And then, I mean, as you kind of are already, you know, suggesting is that, you know, for some of the influencers, you know, who have large subscribers, large followers, it it really becomes a never ending game because you're constantly under pressure, you know, to put up a new picture, you know, show yourself, you know, doing something more extravagant than the other influencer. And, you know, if you kind of imagine people, you know, talking to each other digitally, you know, that, that conversation means that, it, you know, it's a spiral. It, like the image gets more daring. It gets, you know, more difficult to do just to grab that attention, that, that digital audience. 
Right. It's um, I mean, we say when we say large audiences, it's not unusual or not yeah. unheard of yeah. for a YouTube video of somebody up on top of one of these roofs to have two million views. I mean, there's sort yeah. of nothing you or I could do in our lives that would probably generate two million views. No, I, I think absolutely that, and, and that is, I think, what is you know in part driving this as well. I think the fact that you know if you post something there out there that is really different, that is daring, that shows that kind of willingness of risk taking, it will get you know those likes. It will you know will be forwarded. It will get that attention, and you know then of course you know that just requires for you know for the influencer to post that next video that you know, kind of outdust the previous video. So I think absolutely, I think the audience is in part also driving, you know, the, the kind of the culture, um, you know, to, to create more of that kind of content. Right. So one of the other risk-taking things that uh, people can do in large groups uh, to attract attention is run for president of the United States. Uh, here's Andrew Yang, one of the candidates, talking a little bit about the phenomenon that we're talking about. If you look at the data, it's clear that social media apps and smartphones and screen time have had a disastrous effect on the mental health of our adolescents, on teenage girls in particular. And as someone running for president, I use technology an awful lot, but it's certainly the case that my friends in Silicon Valley who are parents are among the biggest advocates of not having screen time for their families. And that tells you all you need to know. Would you institute some sort of a, a recommendation at least about how much screen time parents should allow their kids to have? I would go further than that. I've already said I would start a new department of the attention economy because right now we have the smartest engineers in the country turning supercomputers into slot machines and dopamine delivery devices for teenagers, and that's their financial incentive. So what is the incentive for our kids' mental health? Unfortunately, this is an instance where the government needs to get involved, and so a department of the attention economy would start having a counterweight to the financial incentives of these companies. So, Annabelle, as you listen to that, that I mean, I, we, I think we both wish that your fellow Canadian Marshall McLuhan was still alive to uh, talk to us about this. But um, it also seems to me that, you know, when I was a younger person, what was a symbol of freedom and status? Well, it was probably a car, you know, and certainly status was a, like a really nice car. And there were other kinds of things that constituted uh, markers of status and markers of self-actualization and freedom. But at this point, to Andrew Yang, by the way, is the candidate who's talking in that clip, to Andrew Yang's point, attention really is almost like this Bitcoin, this cryptocurrency that that people traffic in these days. Yeah, and I think that puts a lot of pressure on on young people because they're you know they're building their peers you know they're building their social networks um, online digitally. Uh, I think that's you know a larger phenomenon to do with the fact that kids you know are no longer playing outside you know on the streets and playgrounds, so they're finding their own spaces you know spaces where they can hang out with with their peers, which seems kind of very very normal and natural, but. Unfortunately, a lot of those spaces have very negative consequences, and I think Anu Yang really pointed out, you know, all the negative consequences for mental health, and in particular, this kind of idea of social comparison. So, and I think that's what he's getting at with, you know, the attention economy, which is that, you know, when we put images of ourselves, you know, out there, you know, as young people, we're constantly comparing ourselves with our peers. You know, what other images have they put out? What is the kind of attention that they're getting? 
doing? And are we getting similar kinds of likes? You know, are we, you know, re- receiving that affirmation that is so important in, in youth? And so that's why I feel like and these technologies can have this kind of negative vicious cycle because, you know, you're putting yourself out there, you're putting your life, you know, they, uh, young people share a lot of their everyday lives, you know, and so they're putting that out there, they're putting out their risk taking and all of that is being kind of seen by their peers, but also by a global audience. And so there's a lot of risks, you know, that young people are taking today that I think are not really, that we don't really fully understand yet. And sometimes when, you know, either the risk goes the wrong way, you know, because you've just overstepped that risk-taking because maybe other people, you know, followed a prank or a challenge. You know, I'm thinking of even, you know, the bird, uh, the, the the bird box challenge. So, mm-hmm. you know, then, you know, we're all of a sudden seeing that that escalates very quickly. And young people often don't have, you know, the skills to really assess risk well. You know, they're much more willing to take risks, so to say, like, you know, before maybe driving with the car would be a, a good example. So I, I feel that as parents, you know, in terms of the mental health component, you know, we, we have to be very involved with kids. But I think that also companies, you know, should start considering more on the side of, of regulation. And some of that is already happening, you know, where, where some of these challenges, you know, and pranks have been banned by, you know, YouTube or Twitter. But, but I feel that this conversation, you know, has to be much more ongoing and that, you know, youth have to be much more aware of the risks, both of, you know, putting your personal information out there, the negative side of cyberbullying, um, as well as the risks of taking selfies, you know, in locations that, you know, are very, you know, that, that are potentially, you know, can lead even to death, you know, that, that, are, that are very, that can be fatal. So, you know, kind of understanding, you know, what are the limits is, is really important. We have to stop there. We've been talking to Annabelle Kwan Haas, and thank you so much for joining us, uh, fac- professor of the Faculty of Information and Media Studies, Department of Sociology, Western University, Ontario, the author of Real Life so- Sociology, a Canadian Approach, and Technology and Society, Social Networks, Work, and Inequality. The last thing that I would quickly say here, it kind of goes with, with what Annabelle's saying is, you know, we're at the mercy of our neurochemicals a lot of the times. So you get adrenaline firing you up in d- dangerous situations, and you probably get dopamine rushes when you get lots of likes and retweets and views on YouTube. But there's got to be some kind of value system that goes with it, too, right? There's got to be some kind of underpinning understanding of our relatedness to one another. Uh, we're all transfixed today by this horrible video of uh, a fistfight breaking out at a baseball game in Colorado, a seven-year-old kid's baseball game where the parents are all really really throwing punches at each other. This poor young 13-year-old umpire uh, was trying to keep things under control. It's kind of a little bit of a metaphor for that level of self-centeredness that's just not accompanied by any other understanding of relatedness. So thanks to Betsy Kaplan. Thanks to Kion Wolf. Thanks to Carolyn. And we'll be back tomorrow.